Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're studying the book of Ephesians this quarter, and we are looking at lesson number eight today, entitled Christ-Shaped Lives and Spirit-Inspired Speech. What does the way we talk and the way that we live have to do with, well, what's in our hearts? We're going to be looking at that today. But before we do, let's begin with prayer. Father, we want to thank you for being with us so far in our journey through the book of Ephesians, and we ask that you will be with us this week as well. Guide our thoughts, our minds, and our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're glad to be back with you again. We're glad that you are here with us, and by us, I mean myself and also our special guest this week. Well, He's special every week, but he's the author of this particular quarter's lesson, Dr. John McVeigh. He's the president of Walla Walla University, and as I mentioned, the author of this lesson, John, welcome. Well, special or not, I'm delighted to be here with you, Eric. It's really an encouraging study that we've been going through, and and yet more to cover. This week, an interesting one, Christ-shaped lives and spirit-inspired speech. Yes. So the way we live, the things we say... Go figure, perhaps it has something to do with Christianity, huh? In my home growing up, there was a little phrase, you've stopped preaching and gone to meddling. Mm. Dude, I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. I have indeed. Remember that in the first half, Paul preaches. He preaches the gospel and so on. In the second half, he's gone to meddling a bit. And perhaps no place in the letter more than right here, because he's talking about something that each one of us does a lot every day, and that's speak. And he is anxious that the God-given gift of speech uh, be used in a way that coheres with God's plans for our lives. All right. Well, we're, we're going to delve into this. And as we look at it, we're really focusing on, in chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. But chapter 4 doesn't obviously begin in chapter, in verse number 17. Mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, it begins in verse number 1. And so give us, bring us up to speed a little bit before we jump into verse 17 here. What's happened in the preceding verses? Uh, chapter 4 has these two segments, and it's interesting to compare the way they begin. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, chapter 4, verse 1, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's verse 1, if you compare verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. It has this same sort of serious... Uh, what would you say, pronouncement formula, language going on. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Okay. Somehow these two sections are rather parallel to each other. And Paul has gone to meddling, and he's gone to telling believers in Ephesus how they should behave to cohere with God's grand plan to unify everything in Christ. So, Here are some behaviors that undermine unity. Here are some behaviors that advance and nourish unity. And so he's being rather specific about these strategies, what behaviors to avoid, what behaviors to adopt. And there are many congregations that I wish would really spend some serious time on this passage, understanding the way the God-given gift of speech can be used to damage, to tear people down. But when it's blessed by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, when the filter of the Spirit is installed in our minds, if you will, it can, it can be used to build people up and to bless God's church. And of course, that's what we want. That's what God wants, and I think we want that as well. 
Help us break down this this section starting in verse number 17. How would we kind of, if we were to outline the chapter, what would we see these different portions or segments, how would they fall together? Well, there, there are two, two big segments here in the chapter, verses 17 through 24, contrast Gentile and Christian lifestyles. Don't do this, do this. You were this, now you're this. And uh, so that, that contrast is really important to the passage. So you have verses 17 through 19, the Gentile pattern of life. It's futile it's darkened, it's alienated, it's calloused. So as you keep practicing evil, you have less and less a sense of what that means and less and less access to God's Spirit to draw you into some other pathway. Uh, self, it's a selfish pattern. It's, this is all exhibited by Gentiles. So Paul, in the wider book, has a lot of very positive things to say about Gentiles being drawn into God's grace. But Gentiles left to themselves practice a a pagan, a God-denying kind of lifestyle that he that he discusses here, and then he contrasts that in verses twenty to twenty-four with the Christ-shaped pattern of life, which is renewed, uh, the new self reflecting the righteousness and holiness of God, and he uses some uh, imagery here that is is quite interesting. In verses 24 and following, he talks about this change that the, the saints have, have experienced as being a change of clothing, doesn't he? Uh, to which belongs, your former pattern of life is corrupt through deceitful desires. You're supposed to put on the new man, take off the old man, and, and so on here. And that language can trip us up a little bit. Because putting on a new set of clothes is not a big deal in many of the, in many cultures today. Certainly not in ours. I have too many suits and sport coats in my closet. I don't know about you, but uh, you know, changing clothes is something we do sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, I come home and put on work clothes to mow the lawn and so on. Clothing. Uh, we have to remember that these biblical cultures were subsistence ones, and clothing was very expensive. And clothing also contained markers of your status and place in the society. And you probably only owned one set of clothes, period, the end. In other words, to get a new set of clothes, to put on a new set of clothes, was a dramatic transformation. It's, It's almost like you changed your whole identity because you took off this old garment that said you were a slave, and now you've put on a new set of clothes that announces you're a free person. That's the kind of transformation that's the analogy Paul is using for this conversion experience of the believers in Ephesus. So it's a, a drastic transformation of, of who they are, and we're talking about the, the words that come out of a person's um, mouth. When, when Paul talks about, he puts an emphasis on speech here. You've, mm-hmm. you've mentioned it already. What's the importance that Paul places on speech? Why does he spend, it, again, it's not a long book, it's right. six chapters, right. but he, he takes some time, yes. comparatively speaking, to talk about this. Why? Yeah, so the second half of our, of our chapter, verses 17 through 32, is about spirit-inspired, spirit-bathed, Christ-focused speech. And um, that's a very good question. Why does he spend so much time? 
I assume that he spends uh, so much time there because he knows it's, it can be a problem. He has seen firsthand the destructiveness of, of, of bad speech patterns that tear people down and make fun of others and so on. And he's seen the damage that that can do within Christian communities. And he wants any such damage to be ameliorated in the, in the house churches in Ephesus. He wants only speech that builds up to be practiced. He's talking about speech here. It's, of course, part of the, the larger letter. Mm-hmm. How does he connect those two ideas together? The, the t- I missed the first, uh, first idea, Eric. He's, so he, he connects this speech mm-hmm. with the rest of the, the letter, sure, as sure. it were. How do those two come together? Yeah, for me, again, it's that, it's that uh, theme of unity that he announces back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And it's not just, you know, the pastor standing up and saying, okay, folks, we need to be unified, which can sometimes be code language for you need to see it my way, right? It's not something like that at all. This is, this is cosmic-sized unity, God's grand plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. He's trying to raise their sense of significance, so he, he tells these people in Ephesus that they're part of that grand plan, and how they use their speech plays into that. So by being kind to uh, the little old lady at church, by being gracious to that young adult, you, you're not just practicing Christian niceties and kindnesses. You're entering into the strategic plan of God to unify all things in Christ. So it's, it's an integral part of being a Christian. Yes. We can't just, we can't, I have to be careful how I say this, <laughs> we can't be Christian and yet our language, our speech, not be Christian. It's all part and parcel, part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. In 26, verse number 26, there's, there's an interesting um, passage here. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that he was going to get to meddling here. Yes, this this yes. is. I think this falls squarely within <laughs> I think that. It does. I think yes. so. Yes. So, talk uh, to us about that. I, I think indeed, indeed, it does. It's a great word of counsel about anger. Anger should be constrained. Uh, he, there are some who read this this passage uh, to to defend the idea of righteous indignation. See, I can be angry as, as I can be and still not sin. Uh, but Paul's, that, that's really an unfortunate attempt to understand this passage, uh, partly because uh, Paul is, is drawing on uh, some Old Testament language here, Psalm 4, verses 4 and 5. He's actually quoting the psalm. And if you read that, it's about silence. It's about trust in God. It... it, it that the psalm rings with uh, caref- the advocating careful thought. So the, the ethos of the psalm that he quotes suggests that Paul is not unleashing anger here and say, go for it, get angry, just don't sin. It, it, it has a more concessive feel to it. Paul is saying, saying something more like this. Should you become angry, don't let it blossom into full-blown sin. So he's putting a constraint on anger, not unfettering it, and not not trying to give us a ready defense to be righteously indignant. How do we know that? Well, the tone of the passage itself, but you get down to verse 31, and he says, 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So he's going to ban, essentially ban anger from uh, the, the Christian community. So if he's going to do that just around the corner here in Ephesians, why in the world would we look to chapter 4, verse 26 for a defense of so-called righteous indignation? So I think some of us just, just lost our loophole, as it were, <laughs> in, in being able to let fly with, with choice words and, uh, and emotions. But this is for our good. So Paul may be stepping on our toes just a little bit, and, and really it's not him, it's, it's the Holy Spirit who is uh, trying to guide us back into the paths of righteousness. And by the grace of God, as we study Ephesians, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, speaking of studying Ephesians, if you have not yet picked up the companion book to this quarter's study, you absolutely want to do that. It goes into greater detail in what we're talking about right here today and a whole lot more. You can find this companion book called Ephesians by John McVeigh at itiswritten.shop. Very easy, itiswritten.shop. Look for Ephesians by author John McVeigh. You will find the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath school lesson and you will be blessed if you pick it up. It will add a great deal of depth and breadth to your study of this subject. We're going to come back in just a moment as we continue looking at the importance of Christian speech. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are looking at lesson number eight today. We're talking about Christian speech. Now, we've already, John, sort of uh, stepped on a few toes, ruffled a few feathers, <laughs> but we're, we're only halfway through this lesson. <laughs> yes, right. And so there's, there's yet more yeah, joy more to be found, more, more opportunity. opportunity. That's yes. right. Um, let's, let's jump into verse number 27 here. Paul says, "...nor give place to the devil." What does it mean when Paul says, don't give place to the devil in the context of what we're talking about right here? Well, he's, uh, he's talking about anger, right? And he says, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, which, by the way, is great marriage counseling too, isn't it? And give no opportunity to the devil. So he's, he's arguing that it, should we allow anger to, to become full-blown sin, should we harbor and hang on to anger and let it fester day in and day out? Uh, should we hold the grudge, in other words, that, that that can lead to giving the devil 
a toehold, a foothold in the Christian congregation. And probably here he's, he's cueing that he's already thinking about the great controversy. He's thought about it at various places in the letter. This appears to be one of them. He, of course, will take that up in full heat in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, the famous armament passage. But to give the devil a toehold is to give him a chance in battle, right, to overcome and conquer. And, and Paul does not wish for that to happen. So it seems to be a, a suggestion that, uh, that the, the use of the term is a bit of a prequel to the armament passage and its much more thorough portrait of satanic, demonic activity, the activity of the powers of darkness, and how Christians relate to that. So he's setting the stage, as it were, here in chapter 4 for something that's very shortly to come in, in a greater yes. detail. Very good. We walk down to verses 26 or 27. We just looked at 28, 29. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what's good, that he may have something to give him who has need. And then in verse 29, he says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Oh, boy. <laughs> this... Uh, this is where the, the rubber meets the proverbial road. Yeah, and this, is, this is it. But this is a powerful word from Paul about human speech. It, it is. So, so yeah. unpack that so for it's, us. It's as though he, he is imagining some word forming in our minds and hearts and beginning to make its way up to the vocal cords and coming forth to wreak its havoc and its destruction uh, upon others. And, and he's saying, don't let that happen. You know, don't don't unleash that word. Let no corrupting or rotten word come out of your mouths. And then then he says, but instead of that, instead of using your speech to destroy others, to damage their their sense of who they are, to damage their faith, to damage their hold on Christ as a Savior, don't do that. Instead, here's what you should do. And uh, he he really imagines that the Holy Spirit would plant a filter in each of our hearts. Why I say the Holy Spirit is because in verse 30, he ties this behavior uh, to the Spirit, and he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't, by, by releasing that tirade on someone that's shaping in your heart and mind, and you, you release that molten lava <laughs> flow on someone, that will grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he imagines the Holy Spirit providing a, a filter in our hearts and minds. And it has three parts. Number one, three tests. So if we could train ourselves as Christian believers to ask these three questions about some statement I'm about to make and I have this inkling of the Spirit, mm, should I say that, shouldn't I? Here's the three-way test, okay? Number one, is it good for building up? Will it encourage somebody? Will it uh, enhance their faith? Will it fuel their faith and their hope? Uh, Is it good for building up? Question number one. Question number two, a word may be positive. It's possible that you might say, yeah, I think that's a positive word. That probably builds someone up. But does it also fit the occasion? Because uh, I might say something that isn't so bad, but in a particular context, it might actually be a destructive word. So 
element one of the filter, the Spirit-inspired filter, is it good for building up? Number two, does it fit the occasion? Paul's words, right? Does it fit the occasion? And number three, the culminating, the ultimate test is this one. Would the statement you're about to make, quote, give grace to those who hear, unquote? Now, that's a pretty good test, pretty good, uh, solid, stiff three-way test. And if that that response that's forming in your heart and your mind doesn't pass that three-way test, Paul would say, swallow it. <laughs> Don't release it. You know, I'm thinking, I'm not naming names, but I'm thinking of a few people who would be um, individuals of very few words <laughs> if, if they were to apply these uh, these three tests. And yet they're biblical tests. They're very worthwhile tests. They're very important tests. They're nitty-gritty tests. He is, he is really uh, getting into the thick of it here. And, and I think he, he's making great points here because once a word has come out of, of your mouth, it can't be taken back, uh, and it does its damage. It, it's kind of like, a, like toothpaste. Sure. Once it comes out of the tube, it it's is. very difficult to get back into the tube. It is. And Eric, I think it's really important that we think about this in, in our era of communications where we have all sorts of social platforms to communicate on, some of whom allow some degree of anonymity uh, sometimes when we sit down at the keyboards, we lose all filter. We sit at our keyboard and we shoot off an email, and it's so easy to do and so simple to do, and it just flows out of our fingers and it's on the page. We hit the send button, and it may not be till the next day that you go, uh, you know, mm, was that really the thing that I should do? So there's no time like the present to apply this filter, not just to things that we might say at the water fountain, uh, but to the to the the messages we might be. Uh, typing and email and all that sort of thing. And and it seems it's very easy to do that. You don't yes. have to spend much time. You mm-hmm. clearly don't have to spend much thought. It just it flows quickly. But you made mention of something a moment ago that these sorts of things grieve the Holy Spirit. Yes. So when we stop and consider that that, that quick post, that mm-hmm. quick tweet that we put out that doesn't meet those tests, that grieves one of the persons of the Godhead, all of a sudden it becomes a lot more important. Mm -hmm. It really does. Yeah, it really does. It really does. And there's good news and bad news in this grieving of the Spirit. I mean, it would be bad news, of course, to grieve the Spirit. But here's what I find fascinating about that, Eric. We we sometimes tend to uh, assume that the Spirit's presence in our life is a little bit fragile. If I drink a little too much root beer, uh, he departs. If I do this, that, or the other, the spirit flees. from. But here it's interesting, isn't it, what, what Paul says. He doesn't say, uh, if you get angry with someone and you tell them off and you fail to, you fail to have the spirit-inspired filter in, installed in your heart and mind and you really go for it and blast somebody, he doesn't say the spirit departs from your life. He says the spirit grieves, which means the spirit remains. The, the, the Spirit remains with you and, and, if you will, in you. The Spirit dwells in you. And so Paul is suggesting that as a believer, you have some sort of impact, potential impact, on the life the Spirit experiences in cooperation and partnership with you. Spirit does not leave. The Spirit grieves. 
And I find that very fascinating. There's some good news harbored there in, in that concept and that statement. So if he is grieved and he continues working on our hearts, we can experience remorse, which is not a bad thing mm. in this context. Right. And with, right. with that remorse and from that remorse can come change yep. by the grace of God. Yeah, Very the powerful. spirit's relationship with the believer is not fragile, but is durable. Now, I'm not saying that the spirit would never leave. The spirit doesn't remain in our lives if we, if we choose to not have him there. But not fragile, but durable, and I'm grateful for that. Absolutely. Let's jump to the last couple of verses in this chapter, verses 31 and 32. He says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, of course, that's not where Paul's letter ended, but it does happen to be where this chapter ends. So yes. why do you think these verses tie this off? Well, you know, I think verse 32 is just, it's just a, such a warm-hearted word of advice to us, and it's just dripping with pathos, isn't it? Uh, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So uh, he's exploring the relationship between vertical forgiveness, where God forgives us for our trespasses and our sins, and our forgiveness of other people, right? And he's suggesting that there is, is a relationship. If we accept God's forgiveness and we rejoice in the forgiveness that Christ brings in our lives, it, it comes with a claim upon us. And that is to love what God has done for us so much that we model it in our relationships to others. So don't throw the book at them. Be tenderhearted. Uh, be gracious. Be kind in your relationships with others. Uh, model in your relationships with others the behavior of God toward you. He has poured out grace upon you. He has responded to you with redemption and forgiveness could you participate in that work of his by allowing his grace and his forgiveness to flow through you to other people? And we've found this week a beautiful way that we can do that. Through the words that we speak to others, through the lives that we live, Christ is wanting to use you as a conduit through whom he can reach others with his spirit. And our words will make a huge difference in the lives of others. So choose your words carefully. Run them through that filter. And sometimes, uh, sometimes it's best not to say anything at all. But if you can give a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word in due season, you may make an incredible difference in the life of someone else. This week, Paul has gotten down to, uh, to the meat, to the heart of what it is to be a Christian, how to live and how to speak with others so that they and you can experience grace. We look forward to seeing you again next week on Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written as we continue our study of the book Ephesians.